House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Now, uh, joining us is the author, author of My Brother's Keeper, and uh, she's Chris Russell Blackwood. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on now. Now, um, this is a quite quite the book. What got you into writing this book? How did you get into the story? Well, actually, I had no intention of writing a book when I got into the story. A friend of mine who was a friend of the murdered victim's mother got me involved when the case was reopened in 2012 because she had done some work for the family business uh, of the deceased. And she was, you know, they were rearresting um the uh, murderers at this time and, and bringing them into South Louisiana. And so she got me involved and we started uh, immediately working with Ted Kurgan, who is Gary Kurgan, the Kurgan and the victim's brother in creating these timelines and, and trying to find more about these people because uh, they had been let go once in the early eighties. As you know, this is a cold case. So we wanted to make sure that they didn't slip away again. So I got involved with them just, as a person to look through uh, private investigator reports and, again, help with the timelines. And one of the murderers had a set of diaries that was uh, part of the evidence. And to the whole process and the dedication of Ted Kurgan uh, on this case, to, to work on this case, because of how it started to play out and the amazing coincidences, uh, I said, somebody's got to write this book. And that was me because <laughs> so uh, to answer your question that's why i wrote the book because it's an amazing story and i was fortunate enough to be right in the middle of everything that was going on a journey for me yeah uh, so did you have a background in in criminal law or something like that no i i am a journalist i've been a journalist uh for more than 40 years i worked at the daily paper here in baton rouge louisiana for a number of years and left there to start a city magazine, which I owned for 20 years before I sold it. So I, while I had a background in journalism, uh, I had written a lot of short-form articles and such. I had never written a book. You probably also have a natural curiosity. That, oh, my gosh, yes. Of course, I learned that from you know early days in the newsroom when uh, people would get upset by what was going on. Uh, Ted Kurgan, when you hear the story, it sounds like this person has just tremendous love and tenacity together. He really does. Um, uh, in promoting the book, I, I just came up with this tagline, how far would you go? Um, people think, oh, well, he had a great deal. You know, he had, he had money. He had resources. So, of course, he did that, and that's. <laughs> no one would have gone i don't i don't know anyone who would have gone to the extremes and the lengths that ted kurgan went to to make sure that these two uh were brought to justice incredible tenacity and he says well my brother would have done that for me well hopefully so but they really have an amazing story uh they were raised in detroit uh the, a single mother who didn't have a lot of resources and Gary, who was the older brother from an early age, and kind of dragged Ted along the road with him. And they were on the verge of this huge expansion with Sonic, and all of a sudden Gary gets murdered. And uh, Ted is thrust into this 
crazy world. Um, just to, to go back to the beginning of the story, exactly um, where did it begin? Well, it began actually uh, in South Louisiana, in the Cajun part of South Louisiana, Crowley, Lafayette area, where they began as uh, Sonic franchisors and were expanding into Baton Rouge and New Orleans areas. So they actually had an office, so to speak, in Baton Rouge, where they met with another uh, franchisor, Larry Tucker, who became an integral part of the story as well. And they would meet at this office do their business meetings, and then go back to their respective homes. Well, Gary went missing one night, and was he was supposed to go back to Crowley, Louisiana, and meet with Ted. They had just received word that their bank loan had gone through. The expansion of their business was, was in place, and Gary doesn't show up. Of course, Ted, as I mentioned, was thrust into this. He literally gets in his car, and he's trying to find – because this is the 1980s. There, there are no cell phones, of course. There's no Internet. Um, and you couldn't file a missing person report for 24 hours. It had to be done in Baton Rouge, and he was about, I guess, 100 miles away from Baton Rouge, uh, where Gary went missing. So uh, Ted looks for him himself for days. When the police get involved at first, they're not really – there are no leads, so they're, they don't really have anything to go on. And Ted discovers the initial lead that leads them to the murderers. Uh, Gary had been uh, at this – bar where this dancer slash prostitute lured him back away and murdered him. Although she she was 19 years old at the time uh, from a wealthy family from Ohio. So her whole story is very fascinating as well. Her then 36-year-old boyfriend, they, they were both together in the murder. However, she had uh, a vision of herself as this... Uh, up-and-coming person who was going to become some kind of actress. or She was working her way to California. Uh, Gary, as I mentioned, businessman. He was, uh, you know, he was a brash person. I'm sure I can see from the 80s wearing the gold chains and the blah, blah. And, <laughs> and uh, I think that everyone, in fact, in talking to people who were at this uh, bar, everyone called him Sonic Gary. I think they thought he had money and that he actually went around to the various locations and picked up cash or something and had cash in the trunk of his car in his car somewhere. And also, um, I think it was that. It was for the money. Um, and also, I, I think they might have... I'm not sure Gary's the only one they killed. It was the only one they were that they uh, were found guilty of, but I suspect it, part of it was for the thrill of killing as well. They moved out of New Orleans very quickly and uh, and murdered Gary toward the uh, end of November 1984. Was, and then they what? fled to Las Vegas, which is really interesting as well. Oh. So so they, they actually fled the, the scene. Like they uh, they knew they killed someone yes. and, and they wanted to get away. Um, why did they choose Vegas? Well, because Ron had also worked there as a casino barker and as a clown. So um, I... I'm sure that he knew that area well. He was from North Louisiana. I actually spoke to some of Ron's relatives who remember seeing her when they stopped there in North Louisiana before they went on to Las Vegas. Um, but uh, very interesting that they even tracked her down. Uh, again, I mentioned that people who the, – the couple who owned the bar 
where they were, Gary and Dorothy McGee, had grown to know Gary Kurgan because he hung out there. So they became friendly, very friendly. And when uh, actually it's another coincidence. Ted is the one who located the bar where Gary was the night he was murdered by accident, just because he was, you know, going everywhere he could possibly that Gary had ever been. And this was going to this bar for Ted was kind of a last ditch effort. And uh, when he walked in, one of the girls called him Gary. So hmm. um, he, he became acquainted with the owners who, and that's how they found out her name. And, Question? uh, were able to put a, uh, a warrant out since she was the last person to have been known to see to have been seen with Gary. Question, and then question. when she got to Las Vegas, she applied to be a dancer there, and the warrant popped up. I was just curious about. Um, you, it says you said that uh, the, the this couple was rearrested, so they are, were arrested at one time. Yes, they were arrested for the murder. Uh, uh, then in 1984 and brought back from Las Vegas to Baton Rouge. Oh, after Las Vegas. That's when they got arrested. Yes. Yes, okay. they were arrested there because, uh, as I said, there was a warrant out for her as a material witness in the case. And when she went to Las Vegas to apply for a dancer's license there, the warrant came popped up. Mm-hmm. And so there's actually a pretty cool story about how Ted gets the detectives to Las Vegas because they were only able to hold uh, hold them for so long. and then, But they do get there. And uh, what ensues there is pretty interesting as well. Um, some of the things that were, were remarkable about the story is that the crime scene uh, near the bar in Baton Rouge, uh, the original crime scene investigator was uh, a gentleman named Hiller Moore. And today, and at the time the case was uh, prosecuted, the cold case was prosecuted, he was the district attorney, so he his office actually prosecuted the case, and he happened to be the original crime scene investigator. You know, thirty years before that. What was the first clue for Ted when he started to do this to, to kind of point that pointed back to that couple? Well, once they found out where uh, where they lived, uh, they Ted was able to really be close to this case or. Because uh, he was able to find the lead on the on the nightclub, so the depth of the two investigators really respected him. And he also had been many years before that he had been deputized by the uh, parish sheriff's office where he lived, so he had a badge. And also he had an interesting encounter with the mayor. Which anyway, all, for all these reasons, Ted was really really involved in the case, as probably few people could have been. But anyway, to answer your question, um, once he entered the house and there was an obvious signs that there had been, you know, blood signs, blood stains, and there had been a struggle, the police knew there had been a murder there. Okay. And then, but they they found that their, uh, his Gary's car, and and how did he? They they saw the blood in the trunk. Is that what they did? Yes, yes, that was the evidence. Ultimately, that. Uh, Years later, in 2012, they were able to uh, take the blood evidence from the trunk, the DNA, uh, and connect it to Gary's son, Wade. And so that's how they were able to rearrest the couple in 2012, the DNA evidence tied them to it. 
Okay, so that means that uh, that showed that Gary was in his trunk, <laughs> which is Gary was in the trunk, and actually um, there was enough blood, and uh, that they they knew that whoever was in the trunk died in the trunk. Oh, I gotcha, I gotcha. Okay, and then they they uh, they brush for fingerprints in the car or anything. They did they get anything like that? They did all that, and that is and that's why initially. Uh, they were, but what really got them, uh, besides just the blood evidence, because at that time, obviously, no DNA uh, around, you know, DNA testing around. But what, what really, Lila confessed in Las Vegas. The 19-year-old confessed. That, that was the um, the main reason why they were arrested. It's because she confessed and pointed the finger at Ronald Dunnigan. Oh, okay. So then the finger, yeah, they did go through with all that, but they were, they could not, there was no fingerprint or hair evidence, so that's why they were released. Oh, Eventually okay. they were released. But they were uh, still suspected, though? They just didn't have enough on Oh, them. absolutely. Uh, Ted Kirkin, the brother, Ted, he absolutely was beyond convinced. So he spent the next 28 years doing private investigation. He knew where they were at all times. He knew what they were doing. He followed them. Not personally, but he, you know, he knew everything about them. I mean, he kept up with them continuously through this time. Okay. I gotcha. She actually um, confessed. Why weren't they able to keep them arrested and convict her or even on that? Because she recanted. I mean, she was, and, and I think because she also was, you know, young and pointed to, Ronald Dunnigan, who pretty much quiet, he's not said much of anything throughout this whole thing, throughout this whole process. He's not really spoken at all one way or the other. But she, uh, you know, she she kind of turned it around on him. And like I said, at the end of the day, uh, back in the 80s, you know, one mi- literally one minute the DA's office is prosecuting, and the next minute they are letting them go saying, um, there's no body. We can't tie the, you know, there, there's no fingerprint or hair evidence. So we're going to let him go, which was a big, huge blow to Ted Kurgan. You know, he, he was incredulous. He couldn't believe it. So how did they get a hold of the, the diary? The diary was, um, found, uh, in Las Vegas, in the Las Vegas apartment where they were. Oh, okay. And actually Ted Kurgan was there and he, Ted Kurgan was everywhere. As the story unfolds, he was actually in Las Vegas. He actually found the diaries in their um, apartment. Hmm. But the diaries remained in evidence, uh, you know, from from the 80s until the case was reopened. It, it was uh, credit the Baton Rouge Police Department. It was it was there. So the diaries were very much a part of, of this whole story because it showed the premeditation. It's they're an interesting uh, kind of I don't know socio combination with uh, what a teenage girl might talk about losing weight and you know it's just a very interesting read but yes the diaries remained in evidence from the 1980s especially if you said that she was kind of like the uh, the the math kind of it yes exactly and uh, the diaries they real they point to that I mean they point to that because uh, you know she says things throughout like uh, Stop being bossy to Ron and fit in the vernacular of a teenager, but um, you could tell that she's very much in charge.
Hmm. And he's, he, um, as I said, he didn't speak much. So, um, he, he's very street smart. Um, so I, and I, and I, I think he was maybe more the brawn. She was more the, uh, the one in charge. What was the difference, um, uh, in evidence, is it just the blood and the DNA that uh, allowed them to move forward and try to prosecute them now? Yes, and the diaries, yes. But without the DNA evidence that tied uh, the blood in the trunk to Gary's biological son, um, the case would not have been reopened. Actually, the, the Batteries Police Department was given a grant, a federal grant, to open a cold case division. Um, this was the only case <laughs> that it, it pursued under that grant because the grant was then not <laughs> renewed. And so, again, another coincidence, this was the only cold case that was uh, part of that federal grant. And ah. uh, there were, you know, in considering cases to open, another interesting character, uh, person that's part of this story, Memory Tuck who is the daughter of Larry Tucker, who I mentioned earlier in the interview. He was also a Sonic uh, franchise franchiser. Um, his daughter was eight years old when Gary was murdered. And, you know, through all of this going on around her, swirling around her, she decided at that age that she wanted to be in law enforcement. And so she became an investigator in the Victims' Rights uh, Department. And she actually did a lot of research and pulled together information on this case to present to them. And so um, probably her ability and inside information and, and interest in putting this case in such a, you know, in such good order, it probably was one of the main reasons it was the one that was picked up hmm. to, to be investigated and prosecuted. So, it's, yeah, it's very interesting. Um, one of the original detectives, R.E. Thompson, there were two on the case, um, he was he testified at the trial in 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 twenty fifteen from all those years ago. So there were a lot of people who were involved in the case then mm. uh, who were still involved when it when it came when it, the cold case was uh resurrected. And where was the car at for all this time? Well the car um the car had been was in a parking lot in uh suburban New Orleans. The the couple drove the car down there and then took a taxi uh, cab back to Baton Rouge. But that's, you know, it's a 65, 70-mile trip. So, uh, But they drove the car down there. They drove the car down there and abandoned it in okay. a uh, parking lot. And then and since the 1980s, that car is still around, but it's like in police custody or something? <laughs> No, the car the car is not still around, and uh, you know even through the Herculean efforts of Ted, he he tried desperately to find the car, but and, tra and did trace it. But the car, uh, you know, the evidence from the car remains, but the car itself is not was not part of the evidence. Oh, okay. But they had photos um, of of the trunk too, as well as the actual blood evidence. Mm -hmm. Do Do you think that they um, got any money from him or? Um, I do, but I don't think they got a few, a couple thousand dollars. It wasn't the haul that they thought they would make. You know, he, they just they got, he had more cash on him than most people would have had, but it certainly wasn't what they were hoping to get. So I think there was another element, maybe the thrill element, or or uh, that had to be it. 
but I think literally they thought he went around to all the Sonics and spent a day's worth of uh, of uh, concession money, and that he had it in his car when he when he showed up. And she lured him to that. Um, he had had an appointment to see Ted that night, as I mentioned, to talk about their business, and he didn't show obviously, but he he was killed during the evening. But she somehow lured him because he, uh, Ted spoke to him on the phone and he, he was ill. So we don't know what, you know, what she did to get him over there again. But she, uh, she never, she would never tell us that part of the story or, or release anything about that. But, um, it, he shouldn't have been there in the first place. Well, it sounds like she had a lot of control. I bet she was quite charismatic herself. Definitely. She was beautiful, um, yeah. dark hair, dark eyes. She was very outgoing, and um, I think she had a, a little bit of damsel in distress about her, um, uh, but definitely extremely manipulative. And to this mm. day, I've talked to her twice. Um, it, it, even uh, when I, the first time I met her, and she's very petite, extremely petite. So the first, you know, I had to do a double take, even though I had you know, so much information on this case and on her personally. And, uh, you know, it, it was hard for me to believe that was she because she was so tiny and so petite. Wow. And then, so she probably completely lacked remorse then. Yes, that is, that is true. There's no remorse at all. Hmm. Now, when you said that, uh, his brother, um, had been, um, spending the last 28, 30 years uh, following them, you know, through investigation and, and kind of seeing where they go and, and all that stuff. Uh, was there any indication that uh, either one of them killed others or did the same sort of thing again? Um, not not that he could pinpoint. Um, Lila Mullah went on to become a nurse. She married... Um, uh, had children, her, but her life, there was a part of her lifestyle that was always, um, a bit, uh, out there. Uh, she, I don't think she ever really led a totally straight life, although, uh, you know, she did work professionally and, you know, she did marry and everything. Um, again, I think she manipulated, she manipulated her husband, her her ex-husband, um, and I, we had a lot of. Although there was no confirmation, uh, there were interviews with different coworkers at different hospitals that she worked with, and and all of them talked about strange things about her. But there was no, nothing ever to prove that she killed anyone. And so the diary did not say that. That was, it just had a lot of damning kind of side evidence kind of thing. Correct. Mostly, uh, I mean, it did list a couple of people, um, you know, first names or nicknames, but you know, there was nothing. And actually, I, I probably Gary, because she mentions another man's name that she's looking for, she's hunting for, whatever for that night. And I think Gary just happened to be, um, you know, the unlucky of the two because. She she somehow caught up to Gary and not to this other person that she, but she actually mentioned two different people in the diary. Wow. And she calls him Sonic Gary in the diary, so there's no no mistake about who she's talking about. Right. 
So they ended up getting convicted, the two of them, correct? Um, she took a 30-year plea deal. He was convicted and uh, received life without parole. Oh, okay. So Which she... is very strange in itself as well. <laughs> yeah. So she, she actually took a plea and testified against him then? Is that how it went? Yes. Yes, she did. And, uh, yes. Uh, it was uh, I. I was in court for that. I was quite. Her testimony was quite incredible. Um, we, you know, it, it was not. It was not easy to predict what she might say because, again, her <laughs> her. Uh, she's got a very uh, you know some type of unusual personality. I'm no psychiatrist, so I certainly can't uh, speak to exactly, but. Um, you know, she's uh, definitely, uh, you know, lied about other things. So it was, and anyway, her testimony, while there wasn't a lot of, you know, there wasn't all truthful, there was enough truth, in, you know, there was enough of the story that got him convicted. Oh, okay. Because she that, did talk about being scared of him and uh, stuff that I, I'm not really sure is all true. So it sounds like the, the diary paints a different picture than what she was trying to paint in the courtroom. Absolutely. Two whole different stories. Okay. So what do you hope people get out of the book when they read it? Well, I, I think, again, although, you know, it is a cold case, it's a murder, it's a cold case murder story, I think that the most important thing to me was um, Ted Kurgan and his tenacity and his uh, his willingness, his drive, his determination to do whatever he had to do. I mean, he was a chauffeur that chauffeured Ronald Dunnigan around. Uh, you know, he dressed as a chauffeur to really? get close to him and find out information. Yes, I mean, he went to incredible, incredible length uh, personally and, you know, uh, using his resources to uh, to get information that would put them behind bars. So Ronald I mean, did not it's, it's know. It's an incredible read just to read the things that he did. And um, the the chances, so to speak, that he took, um, uh, he and the assistant district attorney, Dana Cummings, uh, did an unbelievable job. Uh, so, so very capable. But, uh, you know, they sort of worked hand in hand Um and it was it was just uh, it was to me it was so inspiring the the things that he did and it just never never gave up on this case and uh he had no idea it was going to be resurrected in fact it was uh you know the it had been considered for some months before memory tucker actually made the call to ted to tell him that and i mean he was absolutely flabbergasted you know so once once uh once the case was reopened, I mean he had his foot on the gas the whole time. Um and so that's to me the beauty of this story is to read the things and the length that he went to. It has a great um uh again the timing and the coincidences that are involved throughout the book are really fascinating and the ending is really uh the ending of the book it ends at a in a wonderful place uh as well. But I, I guess I would hope people get uh, get to know Ted Kirk and, and admire and aspire to these things that he did to um, 
I to get these people convicted, to put them behind bars. Because we all say that, you know, I say this all the time, we all say that if this happened to my sister, my brother, my dad, my mom, that we would do these things, that we would do what we had to do, but I don't think people would go to the lengths that he went to. Or couldn't. Wouldn't, couldn't. Right. right. The mm. persistence, yes. So do you have a website or something that people can go and find you on? Or? Yes, yes. They're, uh, my brother's keeper. My brother, well, mbkbook.com. Okay. mbkbook.com. There's uh, stories and videos on that. Fantastic. Well, it's been very interesting, and, and we'll have the book up so people listening can just do one click and pick up the book. Uh, the book is called My Brother's Keeper, and our guest has been the author, Chris Russell Blackwood. Thank you for being here. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.